Hey, how's it going, universe? Welcome to another episode of Zoobox Goes to the Movies. This week, Dan Prophet returns, past and future guests. It's been a long time coming. It hasn't been the same. I know. It's been a lot of uh, you and Big Paul doing Stanley Kubrick movies, uh, <laughs> which as much as I love you and I love Big Paul uh, and I kind of like Stanley Kubrick, it's just it's the whole vibe has gotten so dreary and dark and serious and and kind of heavy you know what i mean actually paul even uh he pulled me up and he was like dude can we just do like a weird movie next time can we just like talk about some fucking crazy weird shit and i was like yes of course we can we did we we took a little break during christmas but paul is such a he's such a grinch he's such a <laughs> he's such like a an ebenezer scrooge he's like no dude a wonderful life is really negative i'm like go fuck yourself buddy <laughs> Yeah, his takes on "It's a Wonderful Life" were uh, so uh, so heartbreaking, so uh, grinchy. You know what I mean? So so humbuggish. Even "Miracle on 34th Street," he didn't really have. He's like, "Nah, dude, this is about commercialism." I'm like, "Yeah, I, I, that's part of it. Yeah, I get that. I understand. I do understand. I get it. It's a commercial for Macy's, but like, you know, the sentiment is not like a bad sentiment. You know." Well, we're here tonight to correct all these wrongs. We're here yeah. tonight to. Uh, well, that's why I wanted to do Mad Max with you because honestly, it's such a, it's such a Reese's peanut butter cup. I mean, it, it, it's it's an easy thing to talk about, uh, especially the first one, which there's not much to. And yeah, it, it's like a great movie on one hand, and it's kind of a terrible movie on the other hand. But the yeah. one thing about it is that there's just not much to it, and I figure it could be an easy chat for us for me to get back into the vibe of Zoobox. Get coding. back in, exactly. Bring us back into the swing of things. Have a little fun. Because this yeah. is a fun movie to talk about. It's a fun movie, um, despite its many flaws. Like we last time, one of the I think was the last time we talked. We talked about Scanners. Is that the last yeah. thing we did? I believe Scanners was our last one. Yeah, and it's got like the same. I I think Scanners is probably I would prefer Scanners over the first Mad Max, but I think they're similar in the sense where you kind of there's like a a thousand caveats that you you can like kind of bring to it for why you like it but you still kind of like the jankiness of it. You like the spirit of, of how it was made probably more than the movie itself. Like that's kind of how I feel about it sometimes. Although there is some inspired things about this movie. It is a, it is a weird gonzo Ozploitation movie. It came out during the boom of kind of Aussie filmmaking. That's how they were able to get a movie made at all during the uh, mid to late seventies. There was like this just boom of just crazy weird, dystopian horror movies and whatnot that came out of australia and mad max kind of comes in in the middle of that era and uh george miller his his feature-length debut he'd never done anything before he was a, a an emergency room doctor apparently and uh he just he had like an entrepreneurial mind and he saw he's like people are making money making these movies he's like i gotta make a movie I got to make some money. <laughs> like and that was like where he just, uh, he just cut his favorite parts out of all those movies and stitched them together and made Mad Max. Yeah, yeah, because it's like, what do Western audiences enjoy? What spe specifically, what do American audiences enjoy? And it was like, you know, car crashes and bikers, and that was kind of a vibe at the time in the seventies. A little bit like dystopian sci-fi stuff, a little nihilistic. So he kind of just went down that route. Although I don't think I don't want to short sell him because I don't think it was completely like cynically made. I, I do think George Miller and as has proved out through the rest of the Mad Max series, it was definitely a little bit more thoughtful than um, than I think like just kind of leaving it there would give him credit. But um, so, what's your personal history with Mad Max? Like, what's your have you been watching this since you were a kid? Is it something you came to later? 
Well, you know, my introduction to George Miller was uh, Babe and Babe Pig in the City. Yeah. Uh, which are still two of my favorite movies. Actually, I haven't seen them in years, but they probably still would be if I watched them. Um, but no, I Mad Max, you know, my introduction to Mad Max came from the cultural zeitgeist that it left behind. All the apocalypse in uh, uh, leather assless chaps and studs kind of thing yeah uh, which became like a, a staple of the apocalypse especially as the fallout video game series kind of um uh took that concept and made it like the bedrock of its whole universe i'd say probably my introduction to mad max was the fallout games because it's so it, it draws so much from that universe um, yeah. when you actually finally watch a mad max movie you're like wait a second i've been here before um I think that, uh, well, I know that The Road Warrior was my first one, um, and I forget exactly how I got into it. I think I started seeing clips of it on the internet. I think I was on a local, here's my brain telling me the history. I was on a local music message board in Boston, and people were kind of posting memes from Mad Max, too. Yeah. And I, like, didn't get it. And uh, so I just decided to um, find The Road Warrior, because that was the one that all the memes were coming from. And it instantly became one of my favorite movies. I was, I guess it was my mid twenties. And, um, I immediately watched the sequel, uh, uh, Thunderdome, which is a yeah. terrible movie. Uh, my least favorite Mad Max movie. And I said, okay, there's gotta be something else to this series. Um, so I dug up the original and, um, watched it probably a couple years after I watched, um, road warrior. And I was completely shocked at how different it was in terms of the tone and everything, because, it's the origin story, not only of Max, but of the world that Max inhabits and the world that Max inhabits was once our world. So we get to see it in its final throes and it's kind of, it's not as apocalyptic as you'd think. No, I mean, but, a lot of that is, you know, it's just all kind of, uh, it nods its hat to like you know, what's actually going on in the world without really explicitly showing you. Yeah, a lot of stuff comes through on like radio broadcasts or uh, you know lines of dialogue that get dropped from one character to another. You don't really see how bad it's getting because you're following the character of Max and he's kind of out in the outback. And to him, it kind of seems like it's just this uh, biker gang coming into town, kind of like what was that um, Brando movie? Was it The Outsiders? Oh, the Brando movie? Oh, god damn it. I know exactly what movie you're talking about. Rebel Without a Cause. Is that Brando? No, that was, that's, uh, that's James Dean. Yeah, I think I think it was called The Outsiders. Was it the, the Brando movie where the bikers kind of like all come into town and terrorize the town and stuff. And, uh, you know, to Max, it kind of seems like he's dealing with a, with a local gang. Um, but also you see at the seams that society is kind of uh, getting much uh, more tender, you know what I mean? Like, even when the cops prosecute or, or arrest these guys and bring them in for prosecution, like, the, the townspeople won't even show up to yeah. be witness against them because they're all terrified. And it just seems like the rule of law is so thin now that the people don't even have faith in it. And I know part of it is probably budgetary, but, like, the shots at the police station, it's like there's nobody there. There's nobody in the police station except like those three cops, and they have like a couple of cars, and it's just like a, a ghost town. Oh, it's de it's like definitely kind of part like serendipity, just because they didn't have a budget. I mean, this movie was made for around three hundred and fifty thousand dollars Australian. Um, most of the uh, most of the cast and crew is paid in beer. Uh, they <laughs> like literally had no money. All the extras are real biker gangs. 
like half the cast, they're real bikers. They're real. Those are real yeah. dudes. Those are the dudes that go. They actually stole all the motorcycles at the end of the shoot. Oh shit! <laughs> Apparently, uh, but so but it adds something to the movie. It adds this eerie quality to the movie. And uh, yeah, what I I like about it, it doesn't feel specifically Australian. I think that's why it probably worked. It crossed over to Western audiences because it just feels like uh, and it also is structured like a B Western, like it's a B movie Western, like they're yeah. out on the frontier. Like that's kind of how that's the kind of vibe of it. Yeah, and the whole thing you you feel isolation everywhere you go in the movie. Um, it almost seems like there's there's nobody around in these little towns, and uh, you know, it kind of makes you feel paranoid. Like there's no like you know even if this biker gang comes in, we have the police. They come in and terrorize us. There's fifty of them and there's three cops. Like what's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. and, and I cops, like and the cops. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say I appreciate how it's not as apocalyptic as the other ones, not so blatantly apocalyptic because we get to see the slow slide of society down into people wearing assless chaps and fighting over gasoline. Yeah, it's the world on the precipice, and I think like the character of uh, Mock or Jesus Christ, uh, Max Rukstansky, however you pronounce that, um, is a is a metaphor for the world tipping over. Like that is, I think that's the kind of, he is, he represents metaphorically like what is going on in society. He is the last good man. He is, he, he actually has a sense of duty, a sense of virtue. He believes in the law, even though he's seeing it frayed and pull away. Even his, uh, even his, even his comrades, even his fellow officers, they're basically criminals. The only thing that separates the the two groups is a badge because they're all hooligans. They're all fucking, they're. Max says in in relation to him, you know, being kind of a madman himself, that the only, at this point, the only difference between the criminals and and him is the badge. But, you know, at some point it's like, in order to fight these criminals, don't you need somebody who's on their level? I mean, that's why Max becomes so successful at fighting them, because he's the only one who's got the gall to actually go all the way and just disassociate himself from the law entirely and just go after them. Yeah, because he believes, you know, he has kind of, I think, a... He's he hasn't given up on like kind of the old world yet, on like on the way he thinks it should be, and it's not until like his partner gets you know burnt up, and then uh, and then uh, uh, eventually you know towards the end of the movie his his son gets killed, his wife gets like disfigured and maimed, that like he just kind of snaps and he lets go. I don't think the movie actually does a very good job of charting Max's <laughs> trajectory. Uh, actually, Max's really not even the focus of the movie until the last half hour. I mean, the movie is like an hour of world building and tertiary characters and learning about toe cutter and all that stuff more than it is about max. Even to the, even to the point where the, his introduction in the movie is weird because they introduce him. Like he's going to be like a major player. Like you just see kind of quick shots of him while these, while his, uh, his fellow officers are out chasing the night rider. And, uh, and it looks like it's going to be this big dramatic thing, and it kind of isn't. Well, I feel like uh, that kind of is all over the movie. There, are, Maybe it was a budgetary thing. Maybe it was a first-time director thing. But there's a lot of things that seem like they should be a bigger deal than they are on screen. Yeah. Like when Goose crashes at the beginning. He's just kind of casually sitting next to his bike, talking on the radio. There's no sense of urgency. Even when the when the when uh, uh, one of the cops gets like the steering wheel through his throat. Like these, <laughs> these, these moments aren't played for great urgency. Um, 
And I think that probably came from George Miller just not knowing how to put those sequences together in um, a more dramatic way. I mean, everything's just so kind of like on the screen. Which is crazy because, like, when you get to the Road Warrior. Yeah. 45? 45, no more. Okay. Sorry, Sean. You're okay. Um, Once you get to the Road Warrior. It's like he's he's a different director. Like he's a he's a great director by his second movie because you know the Road Warrior is like leaps and bounds. Like as from a technical perspective, even if you think about the action, the pace, the sense of escalation, the sense of urgency, all those things that you're just mentioning, they're all in the Road Warrior, and that's his next movie. So it's kind of it's crazy like how how far he came from this to that. Because this is kind of a roughshod movie. It does. It feels like a really indie movie. In some ways, I think that works for it really well. I I love, I love the uh, the car stunts are fucking rad. You know, but the pacing is terrible. I mean, oh, it, it, is. it suffers from a lot of the same uh, problems that Scanner suffers from. Where you know the 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 middle third of the movie is meandering. You can't tell what's going on. You can't tell what the stakes are. You don't understand what any of these people are kind of up to, and it's because the director is having a hard time communicating in a succinct way to the viewer. Um, and he maybe doesn't know how to direct the actors in a particular way, but you know, this movie really suffers from like the, the worst, most egregious scene is the, the wife at the beach scene where <laughs> she, the wife walks from the farmhouse that they're staying from through the forest. And she's getting like stalked through the forest by this gang. And then she goes to the beach. She lays on the beach she goes out for a swim, she sunbathes, she packs up her stuff, and then walks back through the forest where she gets attacked by the gang. Yeah. So we spend we spend a good two and a half, three, maybe four minutes of her like getting to and going to the beach. When the the, the reason for that scene to exist is for her to get attacked in the woods. Or so you could have had her never even make it to the beach in the first place and just had it paced a little more exciting. I, well, I think that or it's it's supposed to be tension building. And it doesn't like the way, yeah. Because you're supposed to feel like this looming threat. Like when are they gonna pop out? When are they gonna come get her? And it ne- you never even feel like it's ever a thing. It's so almost like meandering and lackadaisical, right. and just kind of so matter of fact. And yeah, it's a very it's a weird sequence. Like I understand what he's like trying to communicate, but he did not did not successfully do that. But and little things like uh, you know, it took me. Actually, more than a dozen views of this movie. In fact, I didn't really realize it until I saw a YouTube video about the making of the movie. The part where the toe cutter finds the picture of Max's wife and kid and Max in his helmet. I never really realized that Max planted that there as like a warning, like I'm not coming for you kind of thing. Because things like that aren't, they're just not made very clear by George Miller. Mm-hmm. And because it's one of those older movies some for some reason it's just a little harder to follow just because of the way it looks the way it feels the way it flows and i think that that first time director stuff is kind of all over the screen in this and it kind of speaks a lot to the strengths of the movie because the things that it does well it does so well yeah comes all these kind of forgivable little things exactly yeah when i watched this to to review it with you i sat down and watched it with caitlin and there were at least two or three times where she made me pause it and just said like i I gotta like i do not want to watch what's going on like the part where the the gang is holding max's 
Toe Cutter's gang like is holding Max's kid in their arms. Which and yeah, White approaches them. Caitlin was like, "Pause it, pause it, pause it." <laughs> <laughs> Which because, you know, like, but that's that was a sequence where Miller actually did create a sense of tension. Oh, like, big time! And, I mean, and I'll say this: I'll bring this up now. This is a different movie to watch after you have a kid. One hundred percent. Yes. Because I've seen that scene a dozen times, but I've never watched it since Theo was born. And I felt the same sense of dread that, that Caitlin felt when it came on. Because when you see a child on screen and you have a child, you project your child onto that child, Oh, yes. Period. Children in peril in movies. Uh, oh, my God. It's so hard to watch now. I mean, there's been several times. Like, I was just I was watching this movie about these uh, Japanese kids during World War II. And, like... They're both their parents die in the war, and then they end up getting getting ostracized because of their culture. They're like ostracized from their family, and they have to go like live in a cave. And they both get like diseases and slowly die, and they don't realize that they're dying. Oh my god, dude! I was I bawled my eyes out. I was like, uh, <laughs> I've never cried like that in a movie. I mean, ugly face, snot coming out of my nose. Just yeah, awful. and it really uh, it kind of makes you uh, get off on the power fantasy of of Mad Max even more because you like these bastards they they ran down this child and this woman and you you kind of want to see Max inflict even more gruesomeness on them than he does. I mean, what does he actually do? He runs a bunch of them off a bridge. He runs Toe Cutter into an eighteen wheeler, and then he sets the one guy into the trap at the end. Yeah. So it's not as insane as it as it quite could have been, but yeah, it's more like a. Uh frustrated max you know <laughs> yes yes he hasn't quite gone mad yet but um you know you see that come full circle in the sequels but yeah I, I think you're right i think that they're like they 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 could have stewed on the max character more because he does get lost in the middle of it. oh he's he's a complete like he's not the star of the movie it's so weird like the structure of the movie is weird because it's so lopsided. I mean, he's there, and you see him like show concern for like you would think if you had no awareness of this movie and you were seeing it for the first time and you didn't understand anything about it or never heard anything about it, you would think maybe Goose would be the main character like for the first twenty minutes of the movie, half mm-hmm. hour of the movie. He's so he's the guy, <laughs> and right. then Max is kind of in the background, which I understand. Like I think by the end you kind of understand that point. That's kind of part of building towards who Max becomes and why Max feels the way he does. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's weird. Like how lost in the shuffle he gets for most of the movie and which is because he's not like a bad character. Like I would say, just like you said about like, you know, having a kid changes your perspective of watching the movie, having a kid in a family made me kind of understand Max a little bit more like the value of like, like wanting to keep them safe, wanting to get away from it all. Kind of like, you know, that's kind of the last chat, the last act of the movie. He wants to go and protect his family. He wants to get the fuck out of here. And uh, but evil comes like that's what evil uh, was prospers when good men do nothing type of type of thing. It didn't matter. Like they still found him like the world, the chaos of the world still came from Max just because he didn't want to acknowledge it anymore because he felt bad because he felt traumatized. Like it didn't mean that he didn't have a job to do, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean. The the. The. the homicidal rage that I felt the first time that I held my son was very surprising to me. Uh, <laughs> I did not expect to feel homicidal rage. And I felt homicidal rage because there was a part of my reptilian pea brain that kept saying to me, it, it, it was like a, a new program was loading and booting up in my brain. 
you protect this thing at all costs, at all costs, protect this thing. And when I was holding Theo in my arms for the first time, I started to kind of like bubble with this potential for rage and I didn't know why. And I thought to myself, that is your, that, that is your inner father providing a cocoon to this child. You're preparing to shield him from any and all harm. And your primitive brain still thinks that there's like a tribe across the mountain that's going to come and like steal him or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not going to happen anymore. But my, I'm still very in touch with my primitive brain. So I was still feeling it anyway. And um, I can't imagine, I could talk all kinds of hyperbole about what I would do if somebody did this to my family or whatever. But the reason why Mad Max is so popular, popular is because this is what men want to do. Yeah, so he, he's like good men want to violently destroy evil, you know, and, yes, and yeah. that's why I think guys love this movie so much because Max is one of those characters who will viciously destroy evil. Yeah, which is one of the the things I think is a, a missed opportunity in a broader sense of like the series. I don't think Max really gets has ever gotten to finish his journey back to civilization. Right. And we're we talking- were we were t- we were chatting the other night off off a uh, offline or off recording, and that's kind of like I feel like that's the natural conclusion of his character is to come back around to actually be the guy that wrestles the world back into order because that's where he starts. Right. So you need to have this full circle, like come back to humanity thing. I mean, it's cool. Like I love Fury Road just as much as anybody else, but that's just like it felt like. Eh, well, it's just like it's it's another. Mad Max movie in a in a vacuum, like you, right. you know, you don't. It doesn't have anything to do with his character or building his character. And so as much as I like, kind of, I don't hate Beyond Thunderdome. I think it's a weird movie. I I, I appreciate Miller was not trying to repeat himself, but he made a kind of a weird movie, or not a weird, but just kind of a boring movie. I would say. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, yeah. But like the, even in that movie though, he has more. He actually develops as a character. There is something else to his character. Granted, it's also another another story told by another person. It's kind of contributing to the myth of who Max was, how he he, he travels around and reluctantly does good, I guess. <laughs> um, so it's never from his POV after the first movie, and that's even in, in Fury Road. It's really not from his POV. It's Furiosa's POV. That's who the story is really following. Um, so yeah, I always thought that was a bummer. Like I was just kind of like fan fan wanking, just thinking about like an old man Mad Max movie. I want to see Mel Gibson with the crazy beard out in the desert, wearing the the tattered just the tattered leathers. Just one more time, let's go! Come on, that would be awesome, dude. And and I you know I used to think that that wouldn't work, but you're right in terms of because it wouldn't work in terms of making in just another episode of Mad Max. It no. would work in terms of actually bringing his character to the final part of his arc where like, you're right. He should be, he should finally take up the role of the captain, you know, the role of the exactly. person. Exactly. Cause, and that's, there's a, the scene in the, in the original Mad Max, the 79 Mad Max, when he wants to like, you know, put in his notice or whatever. And the guy's like, you know, he's yelling at him and he's just like, don't you believe in heroes? The world needs fucking, you're a hero. The world needs you. The world needs people like you. You're out there doing good, and without people like you, it's all gonna fall apart. And he says it while he's shirtless with like a, a necklace, <laughs> watering on, a plant, watering a plant. Like that character is such a bizarre character, but 
he he ends up being very endearing. Well, I love you know that's the, one of the, like the things I love about this movie, and it's probably just happenstance, but the casting is so great. Like yeah. every character is is unique and memorable. They don't get a lot of screen time, but just like their their screen presence is so memorable. Like every single one of them, and and Miller to his credit, at least in the edit, like gives everybody a little moment. Like everybody gets a little a little singular moment that kind of encapsulates who that person is. You know. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of characterization uh, for these for these people. Like the Knight Rider, he's on screen for, what, less than five minutes, and he's one of my favorite characters. He's one of yeah. the most bombastic characters in any movie. Like, you'll never forget that scene. You recite, no. like, yelling out ACDC lines. <laughs> I mean, there will be times where I'm, like, driving down the highway real quick, and I'll think about him going, I am the Knight Rider, you know? And, and uh <laughs> Toe Cutter, he knows who I am. <laughs> well, that's, you know, actually the Toe Cutter, the character Toe Cutter. And this is another another uh, a, a boon or feather in Miller's cap. He understands that your movie is only as good as your villain. And I think Toe Cutter is one of my favorite screen villains. That guy, Hugh Keysburn, RIP, he died like two months ago, actually. Um, and he's a, he's a Morton Joe in Fury Road, if you didn't know that. Yeah, and, but he and. is so rad, dude. Like he is so he's he's got this weird Manson cult thing going for him, and he's like weird and like abstract, but also just the most menacing, scary dude, you know. But 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 so understated to the point that when yeah. I first saw Mad Max, I didn't really. There's a lot of things I didn't feel about this movie the first time I saw it, but but Toe Cutter, I kind of didn't. I, I I I didn't get him as a villain. Because he's so understated, but yeah. you're right. He is so, his his cool exterior that's never shaken. His sort of over dramatic flair. There's there's something off putting about this person. Yes, yeah, and he makes you uncomfortable. The way he grabs the guy's face, and the the, the train station guy, he just kind of like lightly touches his face yeah. with all the fingertips, and he's like, "The Night Rider, you will know his name." You well, will look at him when you look at the night sky. That's kind of what's the scary. I, I suppose you could you could view it as a scary thing. Is that this guy? This, these marauders, they have actually an ideology. I think they believe in like chaos and nihilism, but it's something, and they have reverence for each other. Yeah, and they and they and they demand kind of loyalty and respect. There's a what's this like pretty boy? What's his name? Johnny the boy. Johnny the boy, the one that's uh, kind of the new guy, right? I mean, there's a baptism scene in this movie. He baptizes him in water, where there's yeah. a beautiful sunset. Like that's, he that's makes him. The movie. Yeah, it is, and and he makes him go through this rite of passage of lighting goose on fire. Like there's all these kind of things, and it's all too like, it's like all brainwashing. It's all cult stuff. And uh, yeah, and, because they're not just bikers; they're like these dandy cultists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're like kind of. I I wonder. I really wonder if it was kind of a a. a a nod towards the Manson family, because that was that was the thing that came into my mind, like as a you know the most closest correlation I could make. Because uh, if I'm thinking of the time period, yeah, that would be the thing that would stick out the most from the zeitgeists of the time. Yes, yeah, and uh, and he gives just a, a tremendous performance. I mean, it's it's still something that gets under my skin, especially like just going back to the scene where Max they have Max's son, and just the way his creepy, just weird vibe. And he does a lot, like you said, subtly, but it's interesting. His character is never like directly 
doing action. Everybody around him is very violent, and he's not. He's not actually doing anything. Yeah. He's just saying things, which I guess is another, you could say another parallel to Charlie Manson. Yeah, but just so well acted, and I, you know, I like that they brought him back for a kind of a completely different character in Fury. Oh, and, just, and Morton Joe is another one of my favorite bad guys. Like, he's so good. My property! Like, <laughs> he just plays so The ultimate libertarian. That child <laughs> property. <laughs> you, you want some water? Get your own water. Make your, dig your own well. Yeah, right? What, you, you need can't some make gas? Your own <laughs> Get your own trucks. <laughs> but yeah, man, uh, you know, it, it. I think that that's probably the the highlight of the movie is the characterization, the actors diving into their roles. I was watching an interview with the guy who played uh, pretty, what is his name? Pretty Johnny boy. the boy, Johnny, Johnny the, the boy. And um, there's that scene where he's in, he's watching goose kind of take off and he's in the car watching him and he starts like lighting his arm hair on fire with the, uh, with the lighter and he <laughs> starts putting it out. And he was talking about how, you know, they did that scene specifically to show that Johnny was getting these delusions of power and grandeur and that he was going to get taken down a notch, you know what I mean, by his own humanity. And it seems like those kinds of things they put a lot of thought into. But then the actual like pacing, the writing, the editing. Well, actually, apparently, and this is not that weird for Miller, I guess with the Mad Max movies, not very much of a script. It took them 12 weeks to shoot it. They did massive amounts of improv. So they shot like for 12 weeks of them just out there messing around, stealing shots. They didn't have permits for anything. Some of the car crashes, they literally pretended they were police to shut down roads. And then the, and then the police found out about it and they thought it was so cool that they helped them for free. <laughs> that's Australia, baby. I was just going to say that's some Aussie well, shit. Australia in the seventies. Nowadays, if you Facebook post, they put you in jail. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the seventies, the, the anarchic spirit they used to have out there, the wild nomads out there in the Australian deserts. But yeah, so there was like definitely like I think that adds to it. Like they had a lot of room and time to kind of just mess around, and just Miller just shooting tons of material of improv with these guys. Um, actually, you know who probably comes up looking the worst is probably Mel Gibson. He's so vanilla. He's so he's clearly. Very amateur. I think in like in the in the context of the series, it's good because it's the origin story of Max. He's like innocent, right. naive. But uh, if you were just to look at it, that as a performance in a vacuum, you're like, nah, it's, it's all right, you know. Definitely not not who he became. But but you know, a couple years later, just like Miller, you know, by the time he gets to the Road Warrior, he's got it. He's nailed it. Like he is, he is kind of the movie star Mel Gibson. By the time, like a few years later, by the time they get to the Road Warrior, a guy that just has like a presence about him and just knows how to communicate uh, a performance to his to a camera, I suppose. Yeah, yeah and I mean that that is a uh, requisite in, in a character like Max, who always has very little dialogue. That's why it was great that they picked Tom Hardy because Tom Hardy can say Tom Hardy could write a novel <clears throat> with his eyes. Yeah, he doesn't need to say anything to to convey. A great acting experience yeah he was kind of a perfect like a perfect like extension if you're going to do like a young mad max thing yeah oh definitely um but <clears throat> i think everybody kind of on the set there was probably like this feeling of uh being at camp or whatever 
and uh, everybody was just kind of <laughs> being uh, paid in beer, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> being exactly. paid in fucking like, beer, beer, and hanging out and crashing cars. So you know that these actors were like there for the acting, and they were probably they probably took their little bit characters just as seriously as like you know. I remember in like drama club in high school, we did West Side Story. Yeah. And I had like a bit part in it. I was only there because I wanted to like hang out with the girl who was playing Maria. <laughs> and uh, so I got like a bit part. And um, they made all of us write like a, a, a really intense backstory for your character. And um, I think that kind of stuff, and you know, it, it ended up being an incredible performance actually for a high school performance. It ended up, we, we, we played it really dark and stuff, and it ended up being kind of cool as far as I remember. And I got to watch it all because I was only in one scene. <laughs> but um, I think that that kind of thing really helps actors out when they think about their character before their character was on screen and what yeah. their character really wants when they're on screen. I can, you can kind of tell that the actors that were in this movie were taking it seriously. Yeah, because it's their chance to be in a movie. And like at the time, it was the kind of this boom of Aussie indie weird filmmaking. Some of them did make were able to cross over into uh, into America and be successful, like kind of on the cult midnight movie circuit. I mean, even Mad Max, you know, while it did, it, it made it over to uh, the U.S. It still was a cult movie, so much so that when they released Road Warrior, that uh, they didn't call it Mad Max Two in America. They just called it the Road Warrior. Um, and also, when it was—I don't know if you've ever seen it—but there's an uh, there's an English dub of this because they were so concerned people wouldn't understand the Aussie accents. That has a different soundtrack, and completely dubbed by uh, Americans. Yeah, I've never seen that. It must be horrible. Uh, yeah, it's all. It actually makes the movie seem cheaper. Like it seems it's it's very odd. But the cool thing is, but the cool the synth track though the synth score is actually pretty rad. Like it's actually maybe more appropriate. Uh, then like Miller went for more of a traditional score because he had kind of grand notions. You know, your first time filmmaker, he's like, he's like, this is horrific, mate. I'm over here drinking my Fosters and gonna have a Phantom of the Opera playing, like, because it's got a very traditional with horns and all yeah, sorts you of know what? stuff. It, it, but it's completely bland. I don't remember any of the score of Mad. No, Max. I don't. I don't find it very memorable at all. But I do find memorable is Max's wife playing the saxophone. Yes, and. <laughs> Max's wife playing like a stinky sax solo. And I just see like Danny Glover down on the beach looking over. What's going the, on? The only uh, the only uh, memorable musical piece other than that is the terrible song that the woman is singing in the club. Yes, uh, which falls victim to the um, <clears throat> like songs that are written specifically for scenes and movies and stuff. They're not real songs, so they're just garbage. Yeah, and yeah. like uh, there's a couple of songs on the again we're bringing up Fallout and the Mad Max thing, but uh, on the in Fallout Four they wrote a couple of original songs that were supposed to be like in the style of the songs that they play in those games uh, for like uh, I think there's a character who's like singing in a bar mm-hmm. and they're so bad they're just like they, they, because they're they're going for the feel of a certain era or the kind of um, just like a general ambiance of a scene and it's not a real song and your brain knows that somehow. Yeah. And rejects well, because, it. And you're watching that scene, you're like, this woman is singing a fake song that was written for this 45 seconds of movie. Cause they're not musicians. They're not really like, that's not what they're plugged into. Like, so you can, you can spot that shit. It's like, you can <laughs> spot it in the scene. Goose. They're like, they're in the, they're in the club and goose is like totally feeling it. He's like into oh, yeah. her. He's like, give yeah. her eyes and stuff. 
Take it away. Goose will listen to anything as long as it gets him a little fucking box. You know what I mean? Just uh... <laughs> well, that's you know that's yeah because they actually kind of posit him as kind of like a a very like a, a ladies' man character, like you said, and he responds. He's the one that responds the most viscerally to some of the violence because there is something weird. Like Miller just could not communicate the gravity of some of the horrific things that happen in this movie. Yeah, I mean, like the scene. There's a woman chained to a car who's she's obviously being abused by the gang and it just never feels like it's like a dramatic or a big deal you see a dude running tearing ass through a field of blood all over his ass like this something really bad happened here and it's so like i don't know you know i guess maybe you could you could look at it and say like well is that intentional because they're just like well this is the world this is the world they live in this kind of stuff happens I don't think it is intentional. I think that those things were supposed to land harder than they did. And you're like, you're right. It's like this couple clearly got raped. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the goose gets set on fire. The one guy gets a tracheotomy because of a fucking steering wheel through the throat. Um, a cat just knocked something down that was very loud. And none of, this seem, none of these things seem to have any gravity. Hold on one second. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, none of these things seem to have like uh, a great deal of gravity when they happen. No, they just kind of they come and go, and like you almost don't remember them. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't think that that's uh, an intentional thing. I think that that is a like like what is that shot? Like, how can you show something on screen that is horrific and yet it kind of goes off like a dud firecracker? Like, I do. I think it's just. I think it's it's first time filmmaker stuff. Like, how do you? How how do you communicate that cinematically? Like it's not the same as just showing it. You can't just show it. Like it has right. to be. You have to like know how a camera functions and how kind of human psychology to a little bit. Like what is going to make this impactful? What do we need to see? Do we need to see like lacerations on this woman's arms or on her legs? Because where the where the rope is. Like do we have to slowly reveal this? It's not. It's like very matter of fact. It's like a fucking locked off camera, and you have Johnny the boy sitting in the seat. And then you see a woman in the background and it just kind of plays out from there without really much import to it, which yeah. is, which is right. definitely supposed to feel important because that's why goose is so mad when Johnny, the boy gets released. He's, he's irate. He's, you know, this is a criminal rapist and the court system is already, you know, like you had said earlier, it's just completely ineffectual. It just doesn't work. These guys feel well, imp- like, yeah. Not to not to bring it too much into our times, but it's like when you'd watch uh, you know the uh, Black Lives Matter protest this summer, um, and people yeah. are like burning down CVS and looting and rioting, and the National Lawyers Guild is standing there on every street corner waiting to give them a card with a number on it, so that that w- when they go into jail, they can just call this number and get free bail. Yeah, I mean, and, then, and if that, you lived in certain states, they just they just let you go. <laughs> they just didn't right. even keep and, you. <clears throat> So like that, that uh, frustration with this system that's just a revolving door for criminals, um, that where these slimy shyster lawyers are going to get off the worst people, the worst dregs of society, constantly keep them out of jail so they can keep some uh, coins in their pocket. Um, the frustration that good men feel when looking at a system like this, the impotence, the rage, exactly. that's, what, that, that's the 
that's the zit that Max finally pops. He says, fuck this. You know what? They took everything from me. They took my wife and child from me. And guess what, kids? It's over now. We're not doing the rule of law anymore. We're doing my... My rules. And my rules is get a stirring feeling inside themselves when they see something like that because we all want to do that. We all want to be Batman. We all want to pound evil into jello with our fists. But we can't. No, exactly. I mean, everybody wants to be the hero, especially in the most dire of circumstances when things really matter. Um, which is interesting in the development of the character of, of Max because he doesn't really become a hero. <laughs> he becomes one of them. He becomes a scavenger. He becomes a survivor. It's kind of it's it's an odd <clears throat> character, I suppose, trajectory. Because when you find him in the beginning of the Road Warrior, like he really wants nothing to do with anyone. Well, I wouldn't say that he doesn't become the hero. He he becomes the, um, you know, what we now know as the anti-hero, the reluctant yeah. hero. Yeah. He is a hero, but he doesn't want to be. But circumstances force his soul to take inventory of the situation and say, these people need me. I will become one of those people if I don't help these people. Actually, yeah, you're, you're right. That's, that's totally yeah, that's totally fair. And I, because I think that, you know, if you think about it, like he still on some sort of basic level still holds like the principles that he held before. And now it's just covered in scar tissue. And now you have to kind of really be pushed to kind of, I guess, want to even engage in society to be able to utilize that part of his, like, kind of his nature. Because right. he is a good guy. Like, that's the whole. And I wish the movie did a better job of, of kind of explaining that about Max. You don't like you're not shown that about Max. You were told that about Max. Like that's like when he goes to like I said when he goes to put his papers in, the guy just yells at him his character traits. <laughs> but we're not shown any of that stuff. That's never like part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is one of those things where it's like, man, if he had made this when he was further along, would it have been a better movie? Well, of course it would have been. It would have been The Road Warrior. And I think that yeah. that's kind of one of the cool things that um, the Mad Max series highlights about George Miller is that his, his growth as an artist and a director to the, to the point where you get to, you know, well, we'll start off on, you know, the original Mad Max, low budget, learning things on the fly, learning how to shoot a movie while you're shooting a movie. Road Warrior, or, uh, you know, Mad Max 2, He's perfected, not perfected, but he's really ironed out all those techniques. He's got mm -hmm. a little bit of a budget now. And then in three, he's got a budget, but he's got the studio telling him what to do. And they're like, yeah, you got to put Tina Turner in here. And she's going to write a number one hit single for the. <laughs> I know. And going <laughs> to the Thunderdome. It's like such, it's not, that's not what it is, but it's, yeah, but it's, it's basically, basically that. What that's what it is. And then you have Fury Road, which, you know, you get to the point of Fury Road and he's like conducting a symphony. He's an absolute master. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, Fury Road, I never get sick of that movie. It no. is, it's so gorgeous. It's insane. Like the action they captured was insane. It's the perfect mix of like, uh, of computer, like enhanced stuff and practical effects. Like it's so, so much so that it's seamless. And when it's obvious, it's beautiful. Like, you know, when you see like the, the storm clouds, every, every single thing that the, that all the other movies wanted to do Fury road knocks out of the fucking park. Oh my God, dude. Yes. 
I mean, like it's just a movie that every frame is beautiful. Like every every moment is memorable in Fury Road. It is in a large part, like you said, it's it's the greatest hits of Mad Max. Like if you've seen the other movies, you understand how we get to Fury Road. It's like this coda, the coda of of Mad Max, of what yeah. like a Mad Max movie should feel like. But the crazy part is that he was like a he's in his seventies when he does that. Everybody hated him while they were making it. Tom Hardy especially. Uh, he had no idea what was going on because it's such a technical show showcase. So like, he's like, what do you mean? Like you just, gra- you just grabbing random shots, create like, and th- they didn't understand what he was trying to create. Um, that movie actually doesn't even have a formal script. It's just, it's like a comic book. He just gave them the storyboards with annotated storyboards. Didn't even fucking bother to write a script. And if this had made when it first was supposed to be made, it was supposed to be made in like 2004 uh, with Mel Gibson, um, and they built all the sets. They had all the cars. They had all that stuff, and um, they were going to p- film it in Afghanistan. <laughs> and then what happens in 2004 in Afghanistan happens, and apparently, and then on top of that, they had this historical rainfall where the desert actually turned lush and green. <laughs> so it didn't happen. But they actually spent all the production budget back in 2004 trying to make it with with Mel Gibson which is crazy to think about actually but and it then is. he spent and he spent like 3 years in post on on Fury Road as well I mean they shot that movie in like 2012 or something like that it doesn't come out till 2015 Yeah man I mean good things come to those who wait I mean he must have agonized over every every single thing because he probably also realized that was his last last Mad Max movie. Yeah, because it was hard for him to get the budget, get a studio to make it. Honestly, it was because Mad Max is like you know amongst amongst cinephiles or amongst like nerds or whatever. Yeah, we know what Mad Max is. We've watched Mad Max, but like the general public, they don't know what the fuck Mad Max is. Not really. Not in the same way that like we do. They understand the um, symbolism that came from it because it's part of like when you think of the post-apocalypse, a lot of the yeah. symbol, a lot of the uh, visuals that you see in your brain come from the Mad yeah. Max world. It's just been absorbed by so many other. Yeah, it's been in, it's influenced everything you've seen that's come after it. Yeah, like you like you said, video games like Fallout, especially, is pretty heavily cribs from Mad Max. There's actually a, a video game that's like a. Fallout spinoff or made by the original creators of Fallout called The Wasteland, which is what they call the territory. In Mad- and I think in, in The Road Warrior, they start calling it The Wasteland. Um, I had something in my mind, now it's gone. <laughs> uh, what was I thinking? I was thinking of something. It was going to be good. I promise you. Hey, man. <laughs> Um, All thoughts have a half-life like a war boy. And, oh, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Like The reason why people were skeptical of Fury Road being able to make money or whatever, or him getting the budget for it, uh, is the same reason Like you know, people went on the assumption, like, uh, have you seen Blade Runner 2049? I haven't yet, no. I haven't okay. even seen the original Blade, Blade Runner. Boy. Oh, my God. Well, they, so the studio gives that dude $250 million to make a sequel to Blade Runner, only to find out that only nerds like Blade Runner. And people just pretend to like it. <laughs> yeah. So that movie bombs. And I think they're going to have the same thing that's going to happen with Dune. Because that guy, same guy who did 2049 is doing Dune. And I don't think, I think, I don't think they realize like Dune is a very niche thing. Like that is not, 
for wide yeah. audiences. But hey, I'm gonna enjoy. I'll enjoy it. Like, but well, it's just like you know, studio executives at this point, uh, their primary concern is like plumbing the depths of anything that's been successful before because it's a surefire to make money. They think. And they don't understand always why things are successful or why things are popular or how popular they are, like you said, outside of certain circles. Mm -hmm. Like things seep into the cultural zeitgeist and the actual original thing that it came from isn't really popular. Exactly, because there's like a generation or kind of like the anecdote you said about like the Road Warrior. Like you saw these gifts, right? A lot of people, there's an entire generation of people that only know these older movies through memes. They've actually never seen the movies. So they right. have no weight with them. It doesn't mean anything to them. It's just completely an ephemeral thing. Um, it's just like, you know, they, misunder- they misunderstand the idea that, like, a brand just brings money. An IP just brings money. And it doesn't. Like, it's, it's who makes the movie. Uh, like, I, you know, when they remade RoboCop, it, it's only RoboCop in title. Like, it has nothing to do with RoboCop. It's just yeah. like uh, you wanted to make a cyborg movie. Cyborg cop movie, and you just slap the name Robocop on it because you thought, like, oh, people like Robocop. When it's, you know, not really. (laughs) People don't really like Robocop. And Mad Max is one of those franchises where uh, the the imagery from it, the aesthetic from it has influenced so many other things that people know what Mad Max is all about when they've never seen it. You could potentially, like I did, watch a Mad Max movie and feel like you've been in that universe before. Yeah, exactly. You pretty much have. You yeah, know? it's like it's, it's cultural osmosis. It's just like you've, you've consumed so many things that were inspired by it, like you feel like you know it already to a certain extent. Um, and I think that there's that's, 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 that's one of the... Uh, I don't know. That's one of the things about the original Mad Max that you know, when you go back to it, it has so much less of that aesthetic than the yeah. other movies. And you, it, like for me, it threw me off. I was like, "Is this uh, this takes place in the same universe? Where are all the sand dunes? Where's all the hockey masks? Where's mm-hmm. all the people in crazy get-ups and stuff?" Yeah. And it's because you know this is probably five years before all that, and it's it's there to sort of slowly guide you into that world and like you said like all the all the apocalyptic stuff is understated it's on the radio it's 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 on the radio there's signs about no go zones and don't go down this road and x amount of people have died on this road we don't you know it's just there's marauders there kind of like it's kind of very old west movie like yeah well you don't might not want to go down by a hanging rock because uh there's uh, Jesse's gang is down there, and right, and it's not a real bastard. in the sense that it's a frontier that we're taming. It is a civilization that has been tamed that's reverting back to a frontier. So there's this yes. sweet heartbreak about the loss of something wonderful that we all collectively had, and now we're literally going to be gouging each other's eyes out for water, gasoline, and pussy forever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because when I first saw Mad Max, uh, the original one, like I had watched The Road Warrior, and I just my dad, we we he bought the movie, I just had it at my house. I randomly put it on when I was like ten years old, and then watched it like a hundred times, and then I find Mad Max, the original, at the library of all places. Remember those kids? And uh, I was like super excited. I was like, oh, cool, dude. Oh, fucking, oh, nice, more like The Road Warrior. Right. I watched. I was so disappointed. I was so like crestfallen. I'm like, this movie sucks, dude. I was like 14, 15. I was like, this is. I don't like this movie. 
No, for real. That was kind of my <laughs> reaction to the first Mad Max. I had to watch it two or three times to really get butter on that bread, you know? Yeah. I, coming back to it now, though, because th- when we were talked a few days ago, it's the one I've seen the least, probably out of all of them. And um, I, re- I appreciated it more in context of the series. I think it's like it is actually like a good origin story. It's the world on the precipice. We get to learn so much about kind of the nature of people already, even the civilized people. Like everybody's kind of angling, starting to angle for themselves and get desperate to a certain degree. Um, like there's a scene with that mechanic guy. Like obviously he's kind of sells them out, and Max has to go interrogate interrogate them to find where Toe Cutter is. Like so, everybody's already kind of in this place of being desperate, but they just haven't realized it yet. They don't really understand. Some people don't know how far things have gone. And uh, I mean, I'm not trying to be cliche or hyperbolic, but it's kind of the same place that we're in right now in society. Dude, I'm not actually. I don't. I do not entirely disagree with you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, you you have a situation. I mean, this summer we watched people being pulled out of their cars and beaten yes. for going down the wrong road. And we watched the justice system stand by and allow it to happen. In fact, I saw one video of a person who uh, drove through these so-called protesters um, because they were smashing the windows of his car and attacking his car. And then three blocks later, as he's getting away, the police pull him over and arrest him. Okay? Yeah. Or, I mean, even a this, few months this ago, this is the like- fucking shit that drives people crazy. No, it really does. It really does because it's such a. Um... It's like ga- it's gaslighting. You're being, you feel like you're being gaslit. You're like, what the fuck are you talking about? A guy, I can't remember what state it was. Like people, you know, because maybe it must have been Portland. It must have been Oregon, rather. Um, like you know, they started going into neighborhoods, which the media just doesn't. They don't cover it. They don't talk about it. They're going into suburban neighborhoods. A guy had the audacity to sit by his window with a gun. So they stop at his house. They're yelling all this stuff at him, calling him a racist, calling him all these things because of just because there are things to say. And uh, the police come and arrest him for brandishing a weapon. And and this is the kind of stuff, dude. Look, I, I got about three minutes uh, before I have to pull this bread out of the oven, so we can wrap it up. Um, this is the kind of stuff that drives people insane. We have Mad Maxes in this country every day. People who shoot up their workplace. People who go and and uh, you know take it out on uh, people by you know going on a mass stabbing spree or something. These people are experiencing the same thing that Max experienced, except they are not reacting to it in a noble way. They're just reacting to it with violence. And like, and, and you have the average person who feels the same way Mac does, where there's there's a reluctance to give over to that, right? Like they don't want to. They want to believe that the world has order. They want to believe that justice still has a place in a traditional sense, just like Max does. Until Max, you know, has every until you are pushed to this brink where you actually literally have everything stripped from you. Um, I, I really think that that's why so many people. It's not just an MK Ultra uh, Mossad thing. That I think that there are actually people out there on a daily basis who hit that same wall of insanity, and they don't have any righteous vengeance to take it out with so they just walk into their office and start shooting people or they just you know i don't know yeah. drop a kid off a balcony or some shit and oh, yeah. I, I feel like we're going to see this more and more as society gets shakier and shakier and the foundations of our uh justice system get more and more tender 
But um, it's just, you know, what we aren't going to see is heroes like Mad Max. We're going to see more villains because... Because well, just like, yeah, there, there is toe cutters out there. And right. Like, you know, when, when good men do nothing, those people, they are, they're opportunists. Right. They and, see and, the writing on the wall. They see they can. this is how they can assert their control and dominance and power, just like everybody wants. Right. And, and, the, and uh, you know, good men out there who want to exact some kind of righteous vengeance on these people, like me, can't actually do it because we know, like, I know if I went out there and started, if, if I went to my old town in New Jersey where I grew up, which is ruined, it's a fucking crater in, in the earth now. Yeah. If I went there and started like a vigilante just hunting down the scumbags and the rapists and the drug dealers and the pimps that have turned that fucking neighborhood that I grew up in into the place that it is today, I would be taken to jail. So it's yeah. like, you know, the entire system is set up to um, kind of allow for this type of shit. But, you know, it's this is the kind of thing that drives people crazy. And like I said, there's not going to be a lot of hero Mad Maxes. There's just going to be people lashing out in anger. Um, you know, because for somebody to lash out in righteous anger and righteous violence, they have to come from a very specific place. And I think that we just, we, like most people are just in too jaded and nihilistic of a place. They just want to hurt yeah. other people because of the hurt that they feel. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. I think that's true. That, and that manifests itself, whether you're on, uh, on the internet, it manifests itself on like, uh, in, in real life, it manifests itself. Everybody, like I said, people have a sense of like emotional desperation and they don't know and where to put it. They know in real life that even if they dressed up as Batman and became a successful vigilante, there's no like working with the police next year. There's no like convincing commissioner Gordon that you're one of the good guys. And now you're going to work on the skirt. No, you're just going to get no, going to beat you up. Yeah. Vigilante, your stupid vigilante tights taken off and you're going to get sent to jail. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, there is no Mad Max in the real world because if you try to go Mad Max in the real world, the actual establishment crashes down on you. But uh, yes. hold on, I gotta pull this. I gotta pull this bread out. Give me like one minute, and maybe we can like start working on the outro or something. We'll be right back. Okay, cool. <laughs> Let me tell you something about my wife. My <laughs> wife puts a loaf of bread in the oven and then goes to bed. So I'm doing a very important episode of Zoobox Goes in the Movies. <laughs> truly, truly. She's like, how can you? That's trust, Dan. I mean, that's trust. I mean, this I lady know. hasn't played, she hasn't played the saxophone for me in months. <laughs> oh my God, Dan. Maybe you should have left it in and taught her a lesson. I'm just saying. I'm joking. I'm joking, Caitlin, if you're there. <laughs> hey, honey, go walk through those woods over there. Go go spend three hours on that beach, not in peril. <laughs> yeah. No, don't worry. It's a nice sequence. It's a nice sequence. You got a nice ass. That's fine. 
<laughs> but yeah, man, I mean, this, I, that's kind of all I have to say about Mad Max, and that's kind of what I wanted to do, uh, why I wanted to have it as the first episode, me being back on this series, because, you know, it's, uh, it is it is a little Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. There's not much to say about it. It's just kind of good. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of enjoyable. And I, like, I, I really, like I said before, like, I really do enjoy it more now for various reasons, just because I think I appreciate, I respect, I respect what it took to make it. And also, I think it actually it it works well as part of the series of Mad Max. Yeah, it, it works well as like it's bat. It's like the first half of Batman Begins. You know, yeah. like that's kind of what it is. Uh, yeah, I, I wish you, I, you can love Road Warrior, but I think if you if you understand what happened before it, you really really love it. And if if you if you watch the first Mad Max movie and you think it's boring or just stupid or plotting take it in a couple times because there's so much more stuff going on there. It's just kind of hard to digest because George Miller didn't really know how to chew it up and spit it in your mouth for you. Yeah. He didn't have his like kind of his, his craftsman chops just weren't, they weren't sharpened yet, but I do like, I actually, uh, when I watched this a couple weeks ago, oh, before I watched it this afternoon, I watched that and the road warrior back to back and it makes the road warrior even better. Like it makes the road warrior cooler. Yeah. When you actually, when, when I was watching it, uh, the other night, um, we didn't finish it. We we got to like the first, we got to like the last twenty minutes of it, and then we the next night we finished the last twenty minutes of it, and then started on the Road Warrior. And um, it, yeah, it does, I mean, it kind of makes both movies better to watch them. Kind of, I agree. I totally it. agree. Like it's cool. Like I, I, and that's another thing I respect about Miller, about not trying to repeat himself. Like he really wasn't trying to repeat himself by making the same movie. It's not. It's not obvious sequel bait. I don't think any of them are obvious. Sequ- well, maybe Fury Road, but it had been so long in between Thunderdome and Fury Road, and it's so well made. You just kind of don't care. Um, yeah, and, and right, you, Miller could have very easily done like Max drives to the next town over and deals with the gang situation in that town over there. Instead, yeah. it's like cut to dunescape everybody's in weird leather and, and like the, the aesthetic is not i wouldn't say completely different but it's like the aesthetic of mad max cranked all the way yeah, up to you can 20 see, you can see like the culture of like the like the gang is that they show you in mad max even the culture of the police right you can see how it it would be like that in a weird way like it uh, honestly it makes kind of sense <laughs> <laughs> However crazy it gets with like you know Lord Humongous and the Mohawk dude like, which Lord Humongous is awesome. I mean, come on, no dude, Lord, Humongous Lord Humongous probably. I mean, dude, the, the, the fucking name Lord Humongous <laughs> like you're already on some good ground right there. We have come for the gasoline. Yeah, and I love how he's just like, and uh, this isn't uh, this isn't the Road Warrior review, but like. All the villains in Mad Max are just like cool as a fucking cucumber. They're just like, yeah. you know, they they can't be uh, they can't be bullied, they can't be uh, intimidated by Max. Yeah. They're just like, like when you do when you have a dude who calls him not only calls himself humongous, but he basically just wears a couple straps of leather and a hockey mask to That's show awful. to show off his fucking huge physique. Like, I don't know, like. Everything about the aesthetic of uh, Road Warrior, like you said, is just like they take all the threads of Mad Max and just jack it up, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that it's a mistake, or maybe he didn't do it completely on purpose, but I think that when you look at Humongous's gang, there's three or four police cruisers in there. Mm-hmm. 
with and the guys who drive the police cruisers are like wearing the leather yeah cop uniforms it's almost like even even that last bit of order has been absorbed into the chaos yeah you know now the yeah. now the police belong to humongous motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> well yeah because like i think they kind of they make slight reference to that in in the original movie mad max where they're just like we're not that much different from these dudes sometimes like some of the some of the people that are are the police officers in mad max really are just like crazy hot rod dudes and they are just like a a point of view away from like just being just being just as bad like there's nothing that indicates that they're actually doing this for any other reason than hey dude this is pretty fun like her driving Here's cars police, chasing yeah. people um so the 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 villain in part two lord humongous is this big muscly dude who has a bunch of cops like former uh not former cops but like guys in police uniforms in police underneath of him but max's police captain who was called oh, fifi 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 is a huge jacked dude Maybe Humongous is Fifi, bro. Maybe that's that's some deep lore. You should well, no. make a YouTube video. This is the kind of shit that people do with Mad Max all the time. Like, oh, maybe Humongous is Fifi. Maybe Mad Max and Fury Road is the Feral Kid. Yeah, it's the Feral Kid. That's the one I would keep hearing all the time. Because they're just like, no, dude, don't you understand? Max is a myth. He's he's a legend. He's mythological, dude. Like, he doesn't have to. He's he's represents something. I was like, no, nah, no, nah, no. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I just think that George Miller doesn't give a fuck about continuity. No, he doesn't. In, in the fact, in Fury Road, he retcons. Uh, it's not the son that dies; it's his daughter that dies. Yeah, and I don't know why he like. I don't understand why he would do little things like that. Because but Fury Road is like has a deep subtext of like uh, feminine feminist theory. Uh, he had the writer of the vagina monologues on set to talk to the women. Because it's all about patriarchy controlling female bodies, and yeah, it's very and, 2015. Yeah, and the, like femininity. Literally, they have women hooked up to machines, milking them. <laughs> they're drinking mother's milk, and they're there just to breed babies. And that's what he has his like harem. That's they're just there to breed. Actually, when Caitlin and I first started dating, um, well, the, I think the first movie we watched together was Fury Road, and I yeah. got her to watch it because I said this is a movie about motherhood. <laughs> it kind of technically it kind of is right Furiosa is. <laughs> is the grand metaphor for like the matriarchy like she's the powerful woman she will not be deterred she's seen what's happened to these other women these old hags they didn't make it they didn't make it they stood for uh, something and now i stand on their shoulders and i come back as a liberator i don't i don't want to go on too much about the other mad max movies because this one's just supposed to be about the first one but yeah. I, I mean fury road Every little character in that movie is great. Like my, you, you just made me think about the keeper of the seeds, the mm -hmm. old lady. Yeah. And when I when I first saw Fury Road, I was deep into gardening. I, I live in Santa Fe. I have my own little beautiful garden. I've been too busy the last couple of years to really. Ugh, it frustrates me. I haven't really grown a garden the last couple of years, and it chaps my ass. But um, when I watched that the first time. I had just started saving my own seed, and I had just, it, it was probably my fourth year of gardening, fifth year, and I was really getting to kind of like a varsity level of gardening. And when that old lady opened up the bag of seeds, and she talked about how if anybody ever tried to touch that bag, she 
pop them right here in the back of the medulla. <laughs> oh God, I fucking love that old lady. Well, because and, that's uh, another that's another theme of the movie. It's like this uh, naturalistic approach to life, kind of denying this idea of industrialization that's come with uh, you know Immortan Joe and his cohorts. There, but, but also again, Sean, that idea of righteous violence. The seeds in this bag are could be totally important to the future of humanity. Exactly, yeah, 100%. The old lady who, or you know, even if I personally don't believe in hurting other people, I will fucking shoot you through the eye if you come and try to touch this bag because it's that important. Well, because the stakes, yeah, exactly, the stakes are that high. Right, and, and righteous violence is one of the cornerstones of the Mad Max series, and I think it's one of the things that draws me to it because... Look, I, it is undeniable. I'm a person who kills things for a living. It's part of my job to shoot things through the face. And even though they're animals, that to me doesn't make it much less more of a big deal than shooting a human through the face as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And, you know, I am completely in tune with the idea that violence is a part of peace. Violence is a part of goodness. Violence is a, you know, violence doesn't always necessarily need to be evil or bad. Sometimes it can be channeled in a direction that is used to protect good people. Well, because that's, that's yeah. At some point, you have to fight back. It requires you to do that. Like it's not, everybody gets like no matter where you are in history. At some point, like people get pushed to that for because what for altruism. Push and push and push until something pushes back. It's a, it's it's like the concept of entropy. Things will just fall into chaos unless there is a lot of energy expended to build order mm -hmm. and that righteous violence is that energy but you have to be very brave you have to be very skilled and you have to not give a shit because again like we pointed out in this conversation if you're going to enact righteous violence the actual system is probably going to come down on you for it yes if there's a system left there to come down on you yes and i think well, sometimes like i think like, mad max you could suggest is like a um the cautionary tale in the sense of like what happens when you wait too long what happens when you wait too long when the scales are tipped too far in the other way so as a series we know as as the series went they waited too long they yeah. waited too long to drop the hammer right because they talked and talked and talked as they say <laughs> in the second movie but i mean yeah i mean that is where evil flourishes in these spaces where good people sit around and say, well, you know, we're good, so we don't do violence. And because I'm a person who experiences violence on a pretty regular basis in the form of my job, I understand that it's literally a necessity in, like, feeding people. And violence is, is a necessity in so many facets of life. It's just in the modern world, we are insulated from it. Yeah, I'd agree with that because, like you, like just because of uh, well, I guess industrialization, we are so, it, all those kind of things are an abstract. Like you have a tangible relationship with how a piece of meat gets to somebody's plate, right? Most people don't have that. They go to Walmart and they look at it and they say, oh, "Okay," they don't even think about like all of the things that happen to make that happen. They don't Lord understand that it's part of the natural cycle of existence, and we get to benefit from it without having to experience it. I suppose you call that progress. I don't know what you call it. I wouldn't. But. Um, I mean, it's profitable for me, but it's not progress. In the same way that people are um, kept away from the idea of violence being a good thing, because we don't want we don't want individuals in the society to think about violence as an option. 
the violence, uh, the, the uh, monopoly on violence is all in the state. The state doesn't want you taking things into your own hands. And what yes. the movies like Mad Max or Batman or you know the Ninja Turtles or anything that has to do with vigilantes using violence in order to make things more peaceful, what we really need is an excuse. What guys like you and I don't have is an excuse. Max gets the excuse of the apocalypse. The turtles get the excuse of they're not even humans. They live in the sewers. They they like aren't even in normal society. Batman has the excuse of his parents were killed and he was pushed over the edge and he actually has the wherewithal and the skill and the ability to keep one step ahead of the police. I do think even the most ballless man deep down inside knows what needs to be done in order to secure peace and wishes that he had the power to do it. What we don't have is that excuse, and that's why we love mythology like Mad Max. That's why we love mythology like Batman, because these men are given the opportunity and the excuse to use the one thing that men do well, which is violence, in order to secure a peaceful future for the people they love. And it, you know, we, we live that power fantasy through media because in this day and age, our so-called justice system has the monopoly on violence, and it's complete failure. And we live in a place and time where justice is kind of up in the air. Justice is something that goes to the highest bidder. So we kind of uh, disappear into stories like Mad Max because we wish that there was a Max out there cleaning things up for us because we don't have the balls or the ability or we have too much to lose. I know. I think very well said. And I think that is I, like you would call it like your lizard brain. I would call it kind of primal intuition. That's why these movies are so popular. That's why they endure. I mean, they are like you, you go look through like the history of vigilante movies. Most of them are like, well, I guess most of the Hollywood ones are like they're very popular movies. Like people do respond on some sort of visceral level of the ability to take matters into your own hands. Yeah, because like, you don't I mean, want to feel the idea that like you know this is the the great the great myth of like the police right is this idea that like uh, uh the police come after something happens, guys. They don't come before. They come after. You call them out of desperation. You don't call them before it happens. You're not a precog, okay? You're not living a minority report. Um, so this idea and, and then the, the notion that like everybody should be kind of like dismantled. Uh, we should not have any kind of notions about knowing how to defend ourselves. Like we're not even talking about like, you know, you may describe it as violence. I just see it as practicality. I see it as like, you know, I should be able to know how to defend myself. I should be a competent physical person, own a firearm, et cetera, et cetera. Like those are important things. Those are important things. And for some reason, the state wants to do nothing more than to fucking neuter you of those things and tell you that you don't need them as they assert more and more dominance over your life while allowing the world to burn around you. They let it happen. They let it happen for petty politics because they didn't want somebody to get elected president or whatever, they'll sacrifice your life and your business and your they neighborhood. Fucking hate you. <laughs> they do. They have nothing in common with you. Are you fucking kidding me? They they you live on different planets. You might as well be living on Xenu, buddy. <laughs> me, I, you and Tom Cruise going to Xenu. I mean, yeah, and like that's why we want it. That's why we want it so bad because like when I'm thinking in particular at this in this moment of uh, that scene in the in the in the trailer for the new Batman movie, where it's just like a 15 second clip of that doesn't cut away of mm -hmm. Batman just 
beating some dude's fucking skull into the ground while the rest of the dude's gang looks on like, uh... And there is something so satisfying about seeing Batman clobber a villain's brain into the fucking sidewalk. I can't describe it. And I I know not everybody out there is going to agree with me because a lot of people out there are going to, you know, probably not Zoobox viewers, but you're going to be, you know, a little bit more genteel, a little more nonviolent. Look, I'm here to tell you that that shit is a fucking facade that is built for you to feel safe while you're eating net, while you're watching Netflix and eating a fucking hungry man dinner. You only exist in that type of peace because men before you enacted great violence. And that's a cliche, but it's a fucking truth, man. And I, and I think that's why our lizard brains love these kind of stories. Yeah. And like, it's, but it's this no, it's like a deeper philosophical notion of like, uh, what does it mean to have integrity? What does it mean to stand for a principle or a virtue? We don't have that. We have an opportunity, opportunistic government, like with politicians that's just there to maintain power. They don't really care about you. They're not thinking about that kind of stuff at all. They're just looking out for themselves. They already live in some sort of neo-post-apocalyptic mindset. They're desperate and hungry, and they scurry and scavenge and do whatever they can to stay where they are. That's all they want. And they don't care what it costs. And it costs all of us a great deal. It's going to cost us everything. It's going to cost us our entire fucking civilization, I think, eventually. I mean, the absolute best-case scenario at this point would be a Walking Dead-type thing where civilization collapses <laughs> completely, and we just sort of like, uh, have like little bands of survivors that are like growing turnips and shit. What's actually going to happen is like an economic balkanization brought on by several other enormous powers in the world where uh, you get to the point where... Uh, basically foreign governments are controlling our interests. Yeah. It's already happening. We don't even realize it's happening. Yeah, exactly. It's already happening. We don't even realize it's happening because we're too busy with our fucking Doritos 3d. One of my friends texted me the other day and told me that Doritos 3d are back on the market just in time for me to not storm the Capitol again. Thank you. (laughs) You know, I had notions of revolution, but uh... I was going to storm the Capitol next time, but now we have Doritos 3d sweet chili. Yeah, how could I do it with all this cheese in my hands? God damn, boy. How can I storm the Capitol when there's so much extreme flavor in my mouth? (laughs) Insert that uh, fucking Neil deGrasse Tyson, like, whoa, gif. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it it will take, I think, um, a total collapse, but I don't think a total collapse is going to happen. I think that the system is too robust, and there are other systems at work that have too much invested in our system at least continuing to work as a skeleton no we need to be we need to be slaves yeah we need to to be we need to be serfs like total walking dead economic uh societal collapse is not profitable or it will not happen ever yeah they're they're gonna they're gonna start figuring out how to give you just enough to survive so you can never climb up a ladder you can never be anything you're gonna live in despair half the people are gonna kill themselves and then the rest are going to be there to toil away and consume. I, I mean, like, just, I was just talking about this on the latest episode of One Thousand RPM, which I, is my invite-only yeah. invite podcast minicast. Where, yeah, I mean, the whole game now is for you to—it's not for you to be destitute. It's for you to have just enough to pay your bills, or mm-hmm. or just a little less than you need to pay your bills. Never enough to save. Never enough to get ahead. Always just enough to keep you fucking work and keep that economic. Co- and this is, you know, this isn't just a, a crazy racist uh, a propaganda here. The reason that they want 
immigrants from the third world to come into the first world is because they cost about a third. Yeah, it's slave labor. You're too expensive. It's slave labor, and they drive down your value. Like that's all it is. And and people are like, oh yeah, but the GDP and the market and like you know, motherfucker, if I have to pay two hundred dollars more for a fucking laptop, then that's the way it goes, dude. Like, what are you fucking these? What are you talking if about? If you're a person who makes less than a hundred thousand dollars a year, and you're yeah. and the words GDP and market come out of your mouth, uh, sorry, I can't hear you over the cock that's in your mouth. Okay, yeah. because you have look, the GDP has nothing to do with how well a society, a country, or anything is doing. It has to do with how well a stock market is doing. Okay. Well, that's they they bring that stuff up. Because they just they want to make the uh, the immigrant argument like and not like the, you know the open borders argument or whatever. It's just like well you know like you know our GDP goes up things cost less things you you are you are given the savings we're having a rollback moment right it's it's so that you will accept that paradigm whether it's a humanitarian thing when you're on the left or it's an economic thing when you're on the right when in actuality it's just a plan. To undermine all of us, not only the citizens of the United States, but the fucking poor people who but get the brought into this country. If you work as fucking yeah, slave labor, exactly like the Mexicans, a like trailer we, on a on a on a on a corn farm or something. Well, we both lived in Boston, right? Like we both lived in Boston. Like what are like the Mexican community, like the Puerto Ricans? They all live like thirty people in a fucking apartment, like just like stacked in there, and then they all work on food trucks. Like they're not like that's not like a happy life. Right, and that's the paradigm. They're not out there living the American dream, moving furniture. The only thing, you know what, actually, the only thing, and the negative fallout from that was I couldn't get a job moving furniture because I was not bilingual. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, really? I can't pick up a fucking couch and move it up some stairs? Like, no, you gotta be bilingual. If you don't know the difference between up or down in Spanish, then you can't do it. But that's just it, is that it's, you know... Ugh, it's so frustrating to talk about because it's like if you come down on either side of the issue, you get painted as a thing. But the whole point is that all of us are too expensive and we need to be made into economic units units that are cheaper. So they're just like, okay, well, we'll just bring in all these people who are used to have a lower standard of living. I mean, when you talk about 30 people to an apartment and everybody works in a food truck, you're talking about the Great Reset. I these, know. Are, people, these are people who are already primed for the Great Reset so they just bring them in. They say, well, look, uh, you know, uh, uh, American people of every racial group have a negative birth rate. So um, we'll get rid of these pesky white, black, and Hispanic Americans by just bringing in, like, Somalis, South Americans, Chinese, and Indians. And, you know, that this greed, this sort of, like, um, constant grinding people into the mortal mortar and pestle while gaslighting them into thinking that this is happening for some sort of humanitarian reason. This is the shit that was driving society crazy in Mad Max. Mm. And this is the shit that's driving society crazy today. And and the, the thing that's most in common is that our leaders are totally fucking inept. All they care about is themselves and they will never actually reach a solution for any of this. No, they will simply not- talk and talk and line their fucking pockets until everything maybe does collapse, and then they fucking spear it away to whatever island they own or whatever. There is no power in a solution. It doesn't no. exist. Because as soon as you solve a problem, you abdicate, so you give something up. You're like, you've solved something. So you, in a sense, like in an abstract way, you've, you've given something back 
to your people, the population, whatever. That's why war is important to these people. That's why conflict is important. That's why the media will push, you know, racial tensions up way past where it belongs. Like, you know, way past where that's why they will just bore it into your fucking head every fucking day. You're a piece of shit. Like, if you're going to tell me they, they take the majority. <laughs> oh, this is, we're getting a little spicy here. They get like the majority of the, of the U.S. population is white, right? So what do they do all day? They just demonize white people. Like, how can that be a healthy thing for a productive society? It can't. It cannot be. And I'm not even saying racially. Like, say if it was black people that were, like, the, the, the majority race in the country. Like, it would not be good for you to go out and say that they're all evil. Or that they're all <laughs> implicitly racist or something. Or whatever words they, whatever terms they decide to use. Like, it's just meant to destroy you. That's all it is. It has nothing to do with equity. It has nothing to do with, like Dan would say, like humanitarian feelings or effort. Nothing. That's not what it's happening. It's not what's happening. Right. I think that, the, again, we're getting a little spicy here, but I think that they know that white Americans are the spearhead of people who won't put up with our living standard being stripped away from us because, like, yeah, until we, they, we, until we they hook you on opioids, until they hook you on opioids, and they give you just enough to subsist over a long enough period, like they did with everyone else. Exactly, and and it doesn't like I used to think that it was some kind of uh, uh, racial destruction thing. They're doing the same thing to fucking black people that they're doing to us. It is about no, exactly. the fact that we no, are look too at what, expensive. Look at what happened to black people from the '60s to now. And understand what what happened when, like, the welfare system was put in, in place. Like, what that actually did to the community. Like, they were not allowed to prosper. And look at what's happening to people of all races now. Like, now that that is the prototype. That's the test case. Like, how can you do something you call the social experiment that fails horribly... And then, and then just keep going because you don't want to say you were. It's not even that you don't even want to say you're wrong. You've just convinced everybody that this is a virtuous act, even though you're actively destroying people's lives. And there now, there's neighborhoods just ridden with crime, and kids have no fucking way out, and there is no, like, oh my god, like imagine. And then you have, then you have like the entertainment era, like they're all saying like, nah, dude, you don't gotta have a fucking dad. Dads are lame. Dude, you don't need to come from a nuclear family. And we talked about this uh, last time we talked. People do not respect how far and how long it took humanity to figure out the importance of the nuclear family and how that brings an incredible stability. And they are going to do everything to undermine it because that is your power. That's your foundation. That's everything. My son is going to be a king. Don't you understand? <laughs> I know, and uh, you know, I we, we've gone pretty far off the rails. But to bring it back I in, know, I mean, I that's one of the things that sets Max off is that they they destroy his family. Exactly. And, no, but exactly, exactly right. And, and and you know, it is a I don't want to say it's a blessing to Max, but it is for Did Max's take- character. It's what allows him to push over the edge. See, our families are being destroyed, but they're not being destroyed by a biker gang. No, it's slow motion, it's erosion, it's undermining, it's subversive. Exactly. So we don't get that firecracker moment where we get to say, my family was destroyed by X, therefore I'm going to exact vengeance on X. We 
deal with this slow decay, which is confusing. It's and abstract. We don't even know what the yeah. source of the decay is most of the time, and what we we just see the tangible effects of it. I remember when I lived in Boston and I would be hanging out with my immigrant friends from Colombia and from Iran and from all, all different parts of the world. And they had these huge families with these huge family gatherings. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of said to myself, that was when I began to sort of have a realization about where we were as a culture and as a civilization is that like, where the fuck did our huge family gatherings go? Where did our families go? They're gone. No, and it's like a turn of the century. I mean, like you start, like you can track this stuff from like the 1930s onward. It's honestly, it's like the invention of the radio and television and propaganda and like how powerful that was. And, and I don't think that it's any mistake or not mistake. I don't think it's any coincidence that now we have a world and a society where people are going fucking mad on a daily basis and losing it and, and acting terrible acts of violence on other people because much in the same way that this character that we're talking about lost his family was pushed over the edge we've all lost our families but we've lost it to this sort of theoretical weird yes we've lost our families too exactly it's 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 too widespread it's too nebulous it's like, because it, at the end of the day it's everything it's the movies you watch it's the tv shows it's the education system it's the government right. it's like it's so expansive that it is overwhelming and it's it's terrifying. Like being a father in 2021 is like a mildly terrifying experience. My kid's about to be school age. And like, I, I really do struggle. I'm like, what do we do? Like, so we're like, we're going to pay through the teeth to not send him to like a federally funded public school. And we can't afford that. Like, we cannot afford that. I mean, I don't trust myself to homeschool him. I, once I get like a, a better job, I would trust my wife. I would trust her. I would not trust me. And right now, just because of the, like you know life circumstances, it would have to be me. And I just don't trust myself. Maybe I trust a... you're a smart guy. Yeah, we'll just watch Zoobox videos. We'll watch this. I'll be like, all right, today's lesson: Mad Max and the state of the world. <laughs> me and Professor <laughs> Prophet coming down for you, Foster. Yeah, I let my son watch Aliens the other day. You think I'm like really? <laughs> <laughs> when you watch them, you let him watch AVP. It's all cool. Oh my god, I, I almost did that out of guilt. I was like, all right, I don't care. This might traumatize you, but we're gonna watch this. I can't believe I did that to you. I'm sorry, son. <laughs> <laughs> I fell asleep while we were watching Aliens, and he's just like, he's like, oh yeah, he's like, there's a chest burster, and I heard a crack. I was like, oh my god, uh, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but Mad Max is an awesome movie, guys. You should check it, it out. Is, it is. It plays. It plays so much better in uh, in context of the series, and and it actually gives you a lot to think about. And I think, as you've just seen over the past like twenty five minutes, it actually does inspire a lot of of thought about kind of the state of the world beyond like even its 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 place as a movie. Like it really does make you think about where you are. It feels it feels eerily prescient in some sort of respect because we do feel like we're on a precipice of something. Right now, and I think in America, like people really feel like they're on some sort of edge, and they don't quite understand it. Like we're kind of articulating, it's so hard to put your your finger down on what it is, just like it is for Max. Like there is a level of denial I think that most people feel because they want to maintain civility, they don't want to ever have to cross that line. 
and it, it's worth thinking about like what does it mean to cross that line and like and when will that happen well where is where are our thresholds or are we going to allow ourselves to be kind of undermined to the point where like we just become so complacent that we don't care we sink into nihilism we sink into despair we sink into all these all of these things that are literally just driven into your fucking head constantly it's so bizarre like every po- all popular media just like tells you like why you're a fucking moron constantly like, trying to convince you that you're just a fucking idiot and you can never hope for something more you can never be better it's really frustrating and that's why you should check out my short film sad guy 86 eats a hot dog oh it's uh, brilliant yeah you really want to get into existential despair it is uh... a <laughs> that's where that's where we are Anyways, so I apologize everybody for that little mini rant. Um, no, it's great. I think that the yeah the, the last half hour of this, I didn't have anything else to say about Mad Max, but I still have more to talk about regarding the themes about it. Well, I think this is actually what I'm going to link at the end of this episode, everybody. If you've, if you've made it this far, I'm going to link our discussion about uh, Starship Troopers. I think that was also because like that was also like a very tangential conversation where we really kind of got into the meat of some of this stuff and about you know. Uh, you know, because like as much as we want like authority to step in and, and do something, like there is there is an aspect of it. Like, if the wrong person is in charge of doing it, like it can go wrong. Like it, it's not a set game. There are so many variables to everything, and that's honestly what makes it terrifying. And that's why good men have to like are incorruptibles. Like they have to stand up and do something. I don't know who that is anymore. There's nobody I can point to and just be like, oh, wow, this is somebody I really respect, and I, I think they're, they're doing good work, whether it's a politician or otherwise. I, there's, there's nobody. They live in a You're fucking wasteland. Him. Trump isn't going to take back the office? Hold on. You got a hot five minutes. To s- let me tell you why he's still going to be president. <laughs> You're starting the Freedom Party, dude. Dude, the Trump, the Freedom Party, dude. They got a lion. You see that lion, dude? Fuck. Are you a patriot? <laughs> if so, donate five bucks to Donald Trump. <laughs> I know that's always the tag. That's that's what comes at the end of every politician. Anything they say. Hey, listen, we're really on the edge here, guys. If you don't donate to my campaign, I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know what's gonna. Happen. It's like, like gangsters. Like I don't know. I don't know. I know that I don't necessarily have to spend these funds on my campaign. I can just kind of keep them tax free. Yeah, we just right. gotta keep them in the bank. You know what I mean? I know there's no chance of me actually winning this election, but I need another house. Oh my god, that's like yeah, especially down at, like you know this. Oh my god, yeah, down in South Carolina, we had a guy that like literally raised like a bajillion dollars for a race that he could not ever possibly win, and you're like, where does all that money go? I don't know. Like <laughs> he's got a condo in Boca Raton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but <a> timeshare. <laughs> It's got a timeshare in Australia on the edge. That's what we had tonight. We we uh, spent about an hour and a half in our timeshare in the wasteland. <laughs> yeah, what a you know beautiful vistas, beautiful view. I gotta say, still kind of green, still kind of green. I appreciate the signs telling me ah, don't go there. You know, I like that. I appreciate a little that. bit of rape. Well, was, yeah, but like a little uh, rape than I wanted. <laughs> only a little bit though. I mean, like you know. Should we should we get on Yelp and talk about the rape? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! 
<laughs> Three and a half stars, the wasteland. It was a little rape. Otherwise, comfortable bed, beautiful views. It was clean. It was nice. It was sunny. My I wife kind of got raped, though. <laughs> Pancakes, fluffy and delicious. Moist. Delicious. <laughs> Delivered by a kangaroo. <laughs> it's not based for the rape. <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, that's all I have to say about it. I, I, I think this was another lovely edition of Zoobox Goes to the Movies. I can't oh, wait I to I love it. it. It's so, dude. Honestly, I'm so happy that, like, I, <laughs> I'm so happy that uh, things worked out the way they did, so I could have you back on the show. Um, <laughs> but like, it's 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 uh it's awesome to have you back. I love our conversations. This was another great one. I'm glad. You know, I I actually like the tangents because I think it proves how I feel about art in general. I think like good art, good things should inspire something in you. It should inspire you to think about your life and the greater world around you. Like it doesn't need to just be some stupid fucking movie. That's like the most insidious thing about like modern popular cinema. Mad Max was like popular cinema in '79, okay? And now we watch fucking Captain Marvel. That's how far we've fallen, everybody. <laughs> That's how far we've fallen. It's awful. Anyways. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about Zoobox, there's a bunch of links in the description for Facebook, for Instagram, for my Twitter, for my brother Dan's Twitter. You want to see some of his hot takes. <laughs> also, if you'd like to see something specific, if you've watched this and you're like, hey, you know, uh, Prophet and Sean, I like their vibe. I want to see them talk about something specific. Let us know. Drop a comment. I'm sure we'll consider it. I'm sure we'll consider it. Um... Anyways, thanks a lot, Dan. I really appreciate you coming on, man. It's Thank awesome. you for having me back, and I can't wait to our next episode where I defend every Marvel movie to the death. <laughs> Dude, let's go. Let's roll. Oh, you said, well, it won't be hard. It's the same fucking movie over and over. All right, everybody. Have a good night. Bye.